Hi, welcome to the Emergence Playbook. Today we have special guest Brian Patterson of Gunnarsson Detmer. Brian, tell us a little bit about Gunnarsson Detmer. Sure. Uh, so Gunnarsson Detmer is a law firm that's focused on representing emerging growth companies, which are essentially startups from every stage of development, from formation stage all the way through multiple rounds of financing to M&A transactions, IPOs and beyond. Uh, and then the other side of our practice is really focused on venture capitalists. So we represent uh, who's who name of venture capital firms and their fund formations, actually setting up their, fir- their, fun- their, their funds so that they can invest the money, as well as representing them in the deals that they do. Fantastic. So I assume you didn't come out of the womb as a lawyer. So how, <laughs> did, you, how did you get into the craft and uh, what got you excited to practice law? That's, that's a good question. So, uh, so I'm an East Coast guy. I grew up on the East Coast originally. Um, went to Atlanta, Emory University in Atlanta, where I learned about, uh, you know, I was actually planning on being a civil rights lawyer. That was kind of the plan coming out of Emory University. Uh, but, you know, thought about, you know, had some student debt. So I said, hey, you know, let me, you know, I'm going to go to law school, work a little bit uh, before law school, but moved out to the West Coast and um, kind of caught the bug of uh, Silicon Valley. And, you know, every single uh, startup lawyer always begins as a civil rights lawyer. So I thought, you know, <laughs> kind of start there and, you know, and, and found my way and, and really enjoy it. Yeah. Nice. And uh, any thoughts of ever, if you make it big, are you going to go back and, and do that later? You know, it would be nice. I always think like, you know, if I'm you know, able to, um, you know, kind of accomplish everything I can't, I want to in this, in this profession, it would be a nice place to go back to. And I always say, hey, look, you can always, um, you know, you can volunteer yep. and things like that too. So good. Awesome. Well, in some ways you're helping the little guys by helping startups and you're helping them become big guys. So let's transition. That's what my psychologist tells me. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so let's just transition to... Uh, the hot topic of the day, which right. is early stage financing and how best to approach it. Right. So at Emergence, we invest primarily in Series A, which means most companies have raised an institutional seed round. Right. And that's primarily done in the form of a convertible note. Right. So in your opinion, there are a number of different ways to structure a convertible note. What are some of the ways that you see common and what are, in your opinions, the best ways to do it? Absolutely. So um, I think first you want to sit down and think about overall what's your fundraising strategy. How, you know, how much capital are you trying to bring in? You know, what types of investors are you targeting? Are they you know, individual angels? Are you looking at institutions, you know, uh, whether they're you know, Series A stage institutions like, like Emergence or even smaller ones, some of the micro VCs that we hear about? Um, you know, kind of where are you targeting? And I think, uh, and then how much money do you, you know, need? You know, run your plan. And I think once you figure that out, then you can kind of put together your plan on, on your seed round. Um, and generally speaking, in very rough terms, you know, if you're raising less than a million dollars, I'd say that you know you, you you can consider you should be considering convertible notes or safes, which we'll probably talk about a little bit more, uh, convertible securities, or potentially a priced round, a preferred stock Series C type priced round. You know, the more money you raise, I think the more you want to start thinking about pricing your round. Um, we'll we can go into some yeah. of the reasons well, for that. What's but, the cutoff? Yeah. Um, I, like I said, around a million dollars, I think, is a good rule of thumb. Yeah, I definitely have done deals where and advised companies when they're raising, you know, 750k or 500k to do a price round, even. But sometimes, you know, on the margin, a price round of financing, there's a, a little bit more to negotiate. Um, there might be a little bit more legal to, you know, legal time involved um, and costs associated yeah. with it. It doesn't have to be as significant, though. A lot of people, I think, there's a conception that it's a lot more to do a price round. It doesn't have to be if both sides are aligned to keep costs low. Yep. So I don't think so. But um, but I think that's, that a million dollar range, you know, one million or so okay. is sort of the, the thought. 
And so you said basically speed and cost are two of the primary reasons to do a note versus an equity round. Are there are there reasons? Are there other reasons or, or reasons why you would flip it and do the other? Yeah. So I think on a on a note round, for example, if you're the type of entrepreneur, you, you know, you want to be able to have these rolling closes, uh, not really have a true lead investor. Um, you know, have a simple set of documentation that you can go out, have a, you know, a lot of the entrepreneurs I meet, you know, they say, hey, Brian, can you give me a, a convertible note that I can actually sit down and have multiple meetings throughout the day and have people sign on the spot and write me a check. Yeah. Um, a price round, it does, it, that doesn't work well for a price round. A price round is a little bit more of an organized process. Not necessarily a more difficult process, but it's more organized. But, um, but if you want to have, you know, sort of multiple investors um, and potentially, We'll get into this too, which I don't always think is a great idea. You know, potentially negotiating different terms on a one-off basis. At least, yep. you know, uh, notes are more conducive to that. Okay, so let's let's tackle some of these issues we brought up. So, safe versus convertible note. What are what's the highlight big difference, and when should a startup choose one or the other? Right, it's a great question. So. Uh, well, let's first talk about what is a convertible note. Yeah. So a convertible note is a debt instrument. So it's essentially a loan. The investor is providing the company with a loan. Um, and that loan, the ter- per the terms of that loan, it says that it will convert at some future event. Usually it's a financing mm-hmm. um, of a certain size um, and uh, within a certain time frame, yeah. which is the maturity date. So that's effectively what a, what a convertible note is. Um, and all the terms around, you know, what's the value, the valuation cap or the discount, those are terms that get negotiated in a convertible note. A convertible security or a safe mm-hmm. is essentially the same type of instrument. It's a right to buy shares at, a, at in the future, um, but it's not treated as debt on the book. So the real key is, you know, for in terms of terms, the safe doesn't have a maturity date and it doesn't have an interest rate. So a convertible note both has a has has a maturity date. At some point, the loan will be due and payable yep. um, out of pocket by the company, um, and as, it also has an interest rate because debt always has to carry interest. But a safe does away with those. Uh, and it's really treated almost as a, a promise of future equity, essentially, is what it is. Yep. Um, so so what's, what's the downside or upside of using a safe? Um, so safes are great. So Y Combinator kind of created the safe. Um, and, you know, I think for companies, uh, it's actually a great instrument for the most part because it's a very favorable set of terms for yep. the company and for the founder. Um, so if you have, you know, this, you know, and obviously Y Combinator, they brand, they've done a great job branding it. Um, I think it's gained some momentum in the marketplace. You know, if you want to have a very simple structure, you know, I think the key is for around the safe is no negotiation. So once you start changing terms in the safe, I think it defeats the entire purpose. The safe is supposed to be out of the box, open source. These simple. are the terms. The yep. only terms you were going to negotiate are valuation cap and discount. Yep. Everything else is out of the box. Um, a lot of people, I think, take safes though and they start, you know, manipulating them a little bit, which I think defeats the purpose. Right. And then one other thing we see a lot out of YC is that you get companies, if it's a week before demo day, they sign at one cap, and if it's demo day, they sign at a cap. And right. if you wait a week and it's a hot company, it might be twice the cap. Right. So, right. so. Does that also defeat some of the purpose of, right. of a simple structure? Yeah, it can. It certainly can create some downstream complexity as well. Um, so maybe we can talk a little bit about that yeah, and talk that. about uh, you know with whether it's a convertible note or a safe and you know change going having multiple caps and that sort of thing. Um, you know, so I think the biggest issue with a lot of these structures uh, are that. Um, there's just a lack of understanding of what actually happens with respect to the cap table when they convert. Yep. Um, you know, what's nice about priced rounds is that you know you pay a certain price per share, you receive a certain number of shares. The cap table is what it is; it's set in stone until the next round. Yep. Um, and everyone understands. I own three or five percent of that company. 
um, with a safe you and or a convertible note, you kind of know what you own, but you really don't know until it actually converts into equity. And the math behind how these safes and convertible notes, uh, how it works, is actually relatively complicated. Um, and the words really matter. You know, what's in the denominator of the calculation? What's yep. not? Uh, you know, are you diluted by other convertible notes and safes? Are you not? Are you diluted by the option pool that's put in place in connection with the round that in which they convert? Are you not? Um, and I think those sorts of terms, I think, are misunderstood quite often. And those are probably the terms that you were talking about that get negotiated by investors instead of taking it out of the box. Exactly. Exactly they do. And and I think I mean well so I think they get negotiated, but I think also sometimes they don't because I think people, you know, have a they believe that they understand the math behind them, but you know, when you sit down with a spreadsheet, I've had many conversations with entrepreneurs, they look down and they say, Wow, I didn't realize it was that dilutive. Yeah. Um, because, you know, just the way that the terms were written. So yep. I think it's important to talk with an advisor, whether it's an attorney or, or someone else who at least understands these cap tables. Um, have it to you know one of the you know takeaways which should be have you should have an awareness of as you raise at different caps um, what is the impact. Yep, yeah. and I think and just to tag on a little bit to that, one of the the hidden killers of, of convertible notes that people often forget about is that interest rate. Right. Because sometimes you'll have rolling closes, you'll right. go two, three years on a convertible note before right. it converts, right. and you'll forget how much that interest rate actually stacks on right. top of the notes. Yeah, right, exactly. So, so maybe, the, maybe there's a story in here. Do you have any stories of companies that have, on a no-names basis, sure. that, have, <laughs> that have raised four or five million dollars, and what were some of the complications that maybe happened in that Series A fundraising based on too many nodes at, at, at complicated terms? Absolutely. So I've got lots of stories. <laughs> um, so I, I'd say there are a couple of things that really stand out. Um, in one in, in, well, in several instances, I've seen cases where uh, this the sheer volume of the number of investors that they raised mm -hmm. from created a huge impediment to getting the round done. Because I think what a lot of people don't understand also is that ultimately, all of these investors, not only are they going to, they were required at some point to sign the actual financing documents for the yep. round. That means that they are actually going to know um, what they received, and they may or may not be happy with that. Yep. <laughs> um, yep. And it may or may not be consistent with the way that what they thought their belief that their ownership was going to be. So I've seen that blow up deals where you know you've got a large you know, cohort of the of the note holders. Um, the cap table wasn't distributed far enough in advance, which I think is actually a good idea. I think you want to not wait to the last minute to bring everybody under the tent to tell, yep. show them sort of how much they're going to own. Um, but it was distributed last minute, and the note holders say, "Hey, you know, this doesn't work for us. We, we, you know, we need to renegotiate this entire cap table." And at that point, you've spent three or four weeks negotiating with your lead investor. Um, you know, these terms that you thought were now finalized, but now the closing's now pushed off. So yep. that's kind of one scenario. Do you have to get sign off from every note holder in order to have a transaction go through? So that's a, a that's devil in the details also. Mm -hmm. That's one of the terms of the convertible instrument. Um, ideally, you'll have a term in your convertible instrument that says that a majority or something, two thirds, can drag along the rest of the investors. Yep. But even if that, even if you have that term, ultimately those same note holders still have to sign the documents yep. because they are need, they're going to be a you know if this if your round is a Series A round, ultimately those notes are converting into Series A shares, and they need to sign the same documents that every other Series A holder signed. Yep. So there you know there's no way to really avoid that, but certainly you could try to at least um, make it a little bit easier in yourself if you've got kind of this majority pulls drags along everyone concept in it. So we've covered a lot of advice that you would give to founders when they have the chance to prepare for their round. Right. But 
many folks may find themselves in the situation where they've already committed some of these uh, sins. sins, so to speak. <laughs> right. So how, uh, how do you remedy the situation? What's yeah. advice that you would give somebody? They've got a Series A investor who's at the table, but right. the cap table is really, uh, really upside down. Right. What advice can you give to them to, to fix that problem? Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, um, and I mean, I think in most cases, the, the key is to be aware of the problem. So um, I, I think a lot of founders don't think about this until they get to the last minute. But once they're, you know, let's assume in this instance that they've, they acknowledge, hey, I've given away, you know, effectively half of my company in my seed round with my notes because I have so many and they, you know, they converted various caps and that's the result or the yep. likely outcome. I think they need to take that realization and, you know, essentially go back to their investors, ideally ahead of time, um, and at least whether you make the actual changes or not, because sometimes certain investor note holders might be hesitant to actually give something up mm-hmm. prior to knowing with you know certainty that the new money is going to come in from the lead investor, but at least have those conversations with the key folks so that it's not a surprise, it's not a last minute issue, um, you've gotten ahead of it with your investor. Um, it's not an easy thing to do. It's a tough conversation, and that's why I think it's so easy these days to get some very just you know simple advice, you know good advice early in the process to come up with an instrument that won't create a lot of these issues. Um, and, you know, you ask another issue that pops up quite often that creates issues in financings with lead investor VCs is the fandom liquidation preference issue. Yeah. Um, and what I, by that, what I mean is that, you know, typically when an investor, an emergence invests, you know, $5 million in the Series A, you'll receive preferred stock that has a liquidation preference of $5 million um, that's paid out, you know, on a sale before Common receives anything. That's very standard. Um, the problem is these notes, they quite often convert at some sort of a discount, which means that those shareholders, those note holders receive more shares um, than they otherwise would have if they invested yep. kind of the, the flat amount. And, plus the interest. And plus the interest, exactly. So that means it compounds the, the, the preference that they would receive. Yep. Um, so there are very simple things you could build into your note terms early uh, that would prevent that issue. So you don't even have to address it. Either having some portion of the discount converted into common stock yep. or having a shadow preferred series, which you're probably somewhat familiar with yep. as well. Um, so That's a great, that's yeah. a great point. Um, what about board structure? Yeah, because um, most of the time, companies that have that raise on convertible notes don't have boards. They do not. Uh, but then suddenly, uh, when when that Series A happens, the, the seed holder, the major seed holder, wants a seat at the table. Right. So how do you how do you advise folks handle that? Yeah, it's it's tricky. I mean, I think that's you know, there's um, I think a general perception amongst most entrepreneurs that boards are are the evil enemy and want to push that off as as long as you can because. You know that just creates you know one additional person that you kind of have to deal with on a on a day to day basis, and mm-hmm. then will hold you accountable. Obviously, the flip side of that is you know by having someone hold you accountable who's experienced, you know, picking the right partners an important aspect. Uh, that you know you you will be uh, you know your your housekeeping will be a little bit cleaner. Hopefully, yep. uh, you'll be running the business in a way that uh, is more likely probably to scale potentially. Um, but you know it, it could go either way, and I definitely have seen plenty of entrepreneurs that were mature enough and had advisors around them, whereby you know a board maybe it would have been a difficult uh, you know proposition for them to have at that stage, and they couldn't have gone quite as fast if they had someone that was you know really demanding. But so, but I think you shouldn't uh, dismiss it out of hand. I think you should be thoughtful about it. Hey, do I need someone who's you know feels like they've got skin in the game here? 
um, and a fiduciary duty to this company yep. to provide oversight? Or you know, am I okay with you know going it alone? Um, I've got some adequate support without the formalities of the board. Um, I could go either way on that one. I think it depends on the entrepreneur, um, and I have these conversations with entrepreneurs you know on a daily basis. And I will tell you more often than not, they go with no board. But makes sense. <laughs> you know, that's okay. Uh, I don't take offense. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you know. A lot of a company's ability to fundraise depends on the macro environment. Right. And I'd say for the last few years, we've been in a fairly good fundraising environment for entrepreneurs. Uh, so what happens in your experience, you've been through cycles, what happens when people have outstanding notes and then the fundraising environment turns? Right. What are, what are, what are some gotchas or some, uh, some lessons that, that entrepreneurs should, should bear in mind in that situation? Yeah, I mean, I think the key is, there is, um, you know, you really need to know your investors. Um, and if, you're, if you've raised a round where you've got the party round where you're essentially just taking checks from anybody and everybody, you don't really have a personal relationship with these folks, um, and everything's great when, you know, you just finished demo day and everyone's excited, um, and things are going, you know, presumably, you know, they're gonna, it's gonna, everybody's aboard a rocket ship that's gonna take off. Um, that's, that's one thing, but you need to be thoughtful that there could be the opposite scenario where, yeah. to your point, um, the market's kind of dried up a bit. Your business is taking a little bit longer to get off the ground or get to the next set of milestones that will allow you to raise the next round. And you know, some of those investors will come call, come knocking and say, "Hey, look, you know, it's been 18 months. Um, you know, I gave you 250k. Uh, times are actually tight for me as well because I'm part. Yep. You know, I'm yep. I'm an individual here. I'm not. You know, I, I may have a little bit of disposable income, but I'm not. You know, uh, Warren Buffett. So I, you know, I'd like to have my 250k back with interest. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I think that's that's one of the issues, actually, frankly, that the safe was looking to address. Um, that that issue. What I would say though is the key is understanding these your investors and having a relationship with them. You know the the serial uh, seed investors, they will be uh, much more likely to be supportive, understand as long as you are open with them, you're communicating with them, they'll be much more open to, hey, look, we need to extend this term another six months or 12 months or what have you. Yep. Um, but the, the folks that uh, aren't doing this and they don't really have a check and balance in the marketplace where, you know, the, the guys who invest seed rounds all the time, they know the first time they ask for the 250K back in my example will be the last seed deal that they do just because of word of mouth and that sort of thing. Um, but these other guys, you know, they don't, I don't care. I'll never do this again. So once again, you know, where's my 250? <laughs> um, so perfect. Yeah. Let's end on a high note. I've got a bonus question for you. All right. Which All I right. get, which I get a lot from from young entrepreneurs. It's they they they've heard about a Series FF and we're right. doing the Series A, and they want to put that that term in, <laughs> and it's and I, and, I'm, and it and it's one of those things that you really have to do at formation. Yeah. So. Maybe you could talk a little bit about Series FF, yep. when to use it, when it, when to, when to think about it, and then what are the pros and cons. Right. So we'll just start with what what is it. Yeah. Um, so first of all, Series FF preferred. Sometimes it's called Founders Preferred. It comes up with lots of different names, but essentially what it is is a type of stock that needs to be issued at formation of the company, um, whereby if it's sold in connection, if that stock is sold in connection with a financing to another investor the stock actually converts from the series FF preferred into series A or to series B, yep. whatever the round is. So um, there are a number, without going into all the details, there could be tax consequences or at least considerations to doing that with plain vanilla common stock, which most founders have. Um, if you sell a you know, common stock to an investor in connection with the round, it can have different implications, which, um, and, and this, is, this instrument was meant to sort of address that in a more um, yep. efficient way. So, um, 
I think you know. I think the market has gotten comfortable with a reasonable amount of FF preferred. It does need to be put in place at, at the time of formation, though, because if it's not, yep. there's a tax consequence. It's it's more valuable than traditional common stock because it has this additional feature. Yep. And if you try to put it in in place in connection with a round of financing, when you're just getting ready to actually sell those shares, probably presumably, or or have the ability to do so, it's more valuable. So there's a taxable. There could be a tax consequence to the founder that, yep. that receives it. Um, What's and, the right percentage that founders should be thinking about, yep. and what are the downsides? Yeah, so the the right percentage is really, I would say, anywhere from five to fifteen percent. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the range. I we usually see, I probably see ten more than anything. Um, and what that basically means is ten percent of your founder stock will be FF preferred. The other ninety percent will be plain vanilla common, yep. um, and that kind of dovetails well with. Uh, you know what's often a negotiated point, which is a carve out to investor rights to you know, write a first refusal. So um, around ten percent or so, um, you know, five to t- fifteen. And in terms of downsides, um, you know, the biggest there's a few. One is you know uh, sometimes that founder becomes too fixated on the idea that you know I've got to get liquidity, I've got to get liquidity, um, and it's not it doesn't necessarily mesh with sort of what's going on real in their real life. It's not really meant to. Um, it's meant to be there in case you know the, the the individual has a life issue or something. You know they want to buy a house, they want to, uh, they're getting married. There's some costs associated with, it. so they want to liquidate a few of their shares and become a, a little bit equal playing field with the investors in the sense that they're not worried about these life issues. Yep. Um, and that's what it's really intended for. I think sometimes you see founders who are just looking to get you know get you know get paid, and it's yep. not that's not really the, the intent behind it. So that can create a little friction. I think the bigger issue, which we don't have today, but which we could, is you know there's a small organization called the IRS that <laughs> I've heard of. Um, you may have heard of um, that at one at one point they haven't really looked at FF preferred to you know come down and say that it works or doesn't work or um, and I think there's always a threat at some point that they will say look this is a me- mechanism that uh, is actually taxable from the outset. Um, yep. Or you know, mm. creates tax down the line in some sort of way, and that can be bad for entrepreneurs. Obviously, if if, if that ever happens, yeah. But we, we should create our own Series FF and just call it Bitcoin, <laughs> and uh, the IRS won't even know about it. It'll be great. Exactly. Exactly. Um, well, that's that's all the time we have. I okay. really appreciate you coming on, Brian, and sharing your wisdom. I've had the great privilege of working with you on a number of investments. You've right. always been fantastic. Thank you. Um, so thank you, and uh, to everyone out there, you stay sassy. Thanks for listening to the Emergence Podcast. For more thoughts from Emergence Capital, please visit playbook.mcap.com and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks, and you stay sassy.